Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Wall of Power Radio Hour. This is your host, Paul Metza. We've got a great book we're going to be talking about. We have the author on the line. Ray uh, Paget recently released a book called Pledging My Time. It's a collection of over 40 original in-depth interviews. It's uh, the first look at Bob Dylan's career entirely from the perspective of the musicians standing a few feet away from him on stage. From his earliest days in the 60s, all the way through the 21st century never-ending tour, with a few exceptions, these artists are not household names, but they have in many cases spent years making music with one of the most revered and mysterious artists in the world. Ray, thanks so much for uh, joining us tonight. Ray Paget from Vermont. How are you? I'm good. Thanks so much for having me. I, uh, if I sound a little uh, loopy, I was up till about five in the morning uh, reading your book. I started it a few nights ago. It's a big book, uh, lots of pages, but I'm really enjoying it. And uh, and I've and I've read a few Dylan books in uh, my life. In fact, I wrote one, but uh, it was just uh, really an intriguing read with dozens of perspectives. I'm going to just. Let the people out there in the Wall of Power Radio Land know some of the artists and and technical people and promoters that you spoke to in the book. Noel Paul Stuckey from Peter, Paul, and Mary. Martin Carthy, legendary uh, English folk singer. Happy Trom, Jim Keltner, Louis Kemp, Scarlett Rivera. Rob Stoner, who played bass on the uh, Rolling Thunder Review. Kinky Friedman. Marshall Crenshaw, Dickie Betts, and more. It must have been a bit of a labor of love for you, Ray. It sure was. Uh, you know, I'm a big Dylan fan from way back, and I started sort of a newsletter, an email newsletter about Dylan in concert, and I kept having questions as I would just listen to bootlegs, and eventually I figured out who better to answer the questions than the people I'm hearing playing with Dylan on those bootlegs. So that's who these people are. When did uh, so? When did the uh, that idea hit, and when was actually the genesis of pledging my time? So that idea originally hit. I can pinpoint it because I remember the first interview. It was April of 2020, so three and a half years ago now, and I was listening to a tape of a show Dylan gave in 2003. And what I noticed on this tape was that there was a saxophone playing on like every song. And I knew enough about Bob Dylan to know that he did not have a saxophone player in his band in 2003. So I'm going, who is this saxophone player? Anyway, I Google him. His name's Dickie Landry. Uh, he only sat in with Dylan one time. I call him up. Turns out, despite basically not knowing Bob Dylan, other than that one night, he has an amazing story of them meeting at this dinner and then sitting in with no rehearsal. Um, and that was the first one. And it was such a fun story to hear. People seemed to really like it when I ran it in my newsletter. Um, that, you know, I started doing more of those eventually with people who actually played with Dylan in his band rather than, you know, one-off sit-ins. And once I had done a handful of those, that's when I started to think maybe there's a book here. Well, and you've, uh, your work has, uh, and you've written a couple other books, but your, your work has appeared in The New Yorker, Spin Magazine, Vice, and Mojo, among others. When did you become a uh, professional journalist slash writer? After college, I guess. I mean, I sort of eased eased into it. I get um, 
you know, I graduated college in 2009. I did some internships at, at Spin and other places. And yeah, I started freelancing. Um, and then within a few years, I was doing my own site, Cover Me, which is what the first book is called. Um, so I've been doing it for maybe a decade, a little more now. And what's Cover Me about? Cover Me is about cover songs. I started this blog called Cover Me back back in college. Um, and then after, again, kind of like kind of like this newsletter to the Dylan book trajectory, uh, after I'd done it for a few years, I, I did a book basically about the history of the cover song and writing about, you know, Talking Heads doing Take Me to the River and, and Devo doing Satisfaction and Aretha Franklin doing Respect, those sorts of things. Well, that sounds like a book that uh, that I need to buy myself for Christmas. Uh, this sounds like a lot of fun. You're talking to a guy that uh, had a band called Cats Under the Star- Stars, and we did a reggae version of Louie Louie uh, that Robert Criscow, when he revealed in Village Voice, said, what are these guys thinking? <laughs> I got to hear that. That sounds great. <laughs> it's actually, I'd like to send it to Dave Marsh, because uh, Dave uh, did a whole book on uh, on Louie Louie covers. How long did the book take you to write, uh, Ray? Uh, the Dylan book took me maybe, I mean, it was sort of on and off with the newsletter, but two years, give or take. Well, it's it's just a fascinating book. I uh, uh, Let's talk a little bit about, I, I loved the interview with Ramblin' Jack uh, because you asked him a question and he goes off and, uh, a thousand directions as Ramblin' Jack is out to do, but but tell the folks a little bit about the highlights of that, including when he got on top of the mast of the uh, uh, of the rebuilt Mayflower to help uh, put some sails together. That's right. Yeah, Ramblin' Jack was one of my favorite interviews. As you note, he's his nickname is Ramblin', not because he travels a lot, though he does. It's because he talks a lot. Um, so, you know, a lot, as I say in the intro, a lot of the interviews, you know, they're edited. And a lot of the editing is me taking out my many follow-up questions, my many, what year was that? Where were you? You know, those sorts of things. Ramblin' Jack, he just, ta- it, it, I didn't edit out my part. It's like he just talks for, you know, 15 minutes uninterrupted, telling amazing stories. And yeah, I mean, and he was another interesting person to talk to because like a number of people in this book, he crossed Bob Dylan's path multiple times in multiple eras. Obviously, he's part of the folk scene in the 60s. When Bob Dylan arrives in Greenwich Village, he's around. Then he pops up here and there. And then a decade later, he's on tour with him with the Rolling Thunder Review. And that's where that sort of boat scene comes in. You know, he was sort of an amateur uh, boat person. He he knew a lot. At one point there, out in uh, eastern Massachusetts or somewhere around the Cape, they're, they're filming for this movie, Ronaldo and Clara, on a boat, Ramblin' Jack just kind of climbs up the mast, and is, then as the rest, of the, as, as everyone else rocks away, he's like waving to try to get you know get the film crew to shoot him up there. They do, but I don't. I think it didn't make the final cut, unfortunately. Have you seen the uh, the entire Ronaldo and Clara four hour extravaganza? I have, I have, and as much as I love to defend unpopular things in Dylan's canon, it's it's a fairly rough watch. Yeah, well, I, it's, it's the one thing, uh, you know, I think if if Dylan has an Achilles heel, I, I, I think it's his, uh, uh, either his conception for that song or his appearance in, in films like Hearts of Fire. But other than that, uh, you know, 
is the documentaries, No Direction Home, and the rest. I'm a big a big fan of all of that. Ramblin' Jack, I believe, got his name when he went over to Odetta's house. Uh, the great uh, black folk singer that came up through Greenwich Village met Odetta's mother, and I think she gave him the name Ramblin' Jack. <laughs> but uh, I I spent a uh, a half hour with them backstage. They did a Dylan Days up in Hibbing, Minnesota, which is, of course, uh, Dylan's second hometown. And uh, Ramblin' Jack was on the bill. I was the MC, And I wish I would have taped that 20 minutes or half hour in the uh, backstage with him because, it, I mean, he's probably America's greatest storyteller. I think uh, I think that could be true, and I mean, I think he's ninety-two now and still going strong. So good for him. Yeah, good for him. Now, what uh, what do you have any particular favorite parts of the book? Um, yeah, I mean, there are there are a lot. It's a little hard to pick, but one that jumps out at me as just a really fond memory of a great conversation is this guy named Stan Lynch. And Stan Lynch was the drummer for Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. It's funny you should bring this up, Ray, because that's that's. It's funny you should bring that up, Ray, because that's the exact story I wanted to ask you about. So, so please flow freely with with that with that great story. Oh yeah. So you mean the? uh, He has a number of great stories. Do you mean the Sinatra one? Yeah. Yeah. That one for sure, but any others. Stan is, uh, has such reverence for Bob and sounded like they got along great, which not all of the musicians that you interview in the book did with Bob. That's right. Stan is unusual in a couple of ways. One is that they got along great, which other people did too, but I guess Stan was coming from it from a slightly different perspective. A lot of these people, someone like Keltner or Ben Montench, they knew Dylan's work very well. They revered him as a songwriter, as a musician. Stan Lynch is kind of like... I don't know. I knew a few of the hits, I guess. Like, he, he wasn't a big Bob Dylan person. That wasn't really his world. So he comes in. He's just sort of having a good time, not taking it as seriously as many others do. And when you say that out loud, it sounds like maybe that would be a bad thing. But in this case, it seems like he and Dylan really kind of hit it off, maybe because he wasn't so reverent. He wasn't treating Bob Dylan as this figure on a mountaintop. He's just treating it as sort of a, bu- a buddy. And that starts, which is the story you alluded to, right from day one. Bob Dylan and Petty and the Heartbreakers are doing their very first rehearsal. Um, about an hour into it, Stan just stands up and says, hey, I got to go. And everyone kind of looks at him like, you're with Bob Dylan. What do you mean you got to go? Bob kind of walks <laughs> up to him, looks him straight in the eyes and is like, where do you got to be? And Stan's like, I got tickets to see Frank Sinatra and Sammy Davis Jr. at the Greek. And there's this long beat, and, and Stan jokes that like all his band members were like edging away from him, like, we, we don't even know this guy. And then right. Bob finally says, hey, I love those guys. I want to come. And so they, him and Bob Dylan go on a date to see Frank Sinatra and Sammy Davis Jr. that night. And, uh, and then, so Frank, I guess, hears that Bob's there, invites him backstage, but Bob declines. That's right. Stan is a huge Sinatra fan. He's very excited about this. They, get, they make it all the way to Frank Sinatra's dressing room door. Then Bob says, eh, the heck with it. <laughs> they leave. <laughs> oh, oh, oh that, that's too rich. Speaking of drummers, uh, it was uh, the, I was really touched by, and I'd read it before I actually got a, a copy of the book, but Jim Keltner's 
reverence for Bob Dylan. Talk about that. Talk about when they were filming the uh, soundtrack for uh, uh, the Sam Peckinpah movie. Yeah, I mean, Keltner is the opposite of Stan in that sense. He knows the catalog deeply, reveres Dylan, respects him, you know, a real musician's musician type. But one of the very first times he worked with Dylan was in 73. They're recording the soundtrack for Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. And, of course, the best-known song off of that soundtrack would be Knocking on Heaven's Door. And Keltner had this amazing story. Because it's a movie soundtrack, they're not just in a studio by themselves recording. They literally have the movie silently playing on a screen next to them so they can sort of play along with the movie and get the timing right. And Keltner just describes, you know, it's happening during a death scene. He describes tears running down his face while he's watching this death scene. Bob Dylan is singing Knocking on Heaven's Door, a song he's never heard before. And Keltner's trying to keep the beat on the drums while just openly weeping. It was, it was a powerful moment for him. You know, and I remember that scene when Slim Pickens went down after being shot. Uh, we really had no idea. Of, you know, we, did, we knew Dylan had something to do with the soundtrack, but we had none of us had ever heard the song Knocking on Heaven's Door. And I remember when, it, when that song came up during that scene, I was, I can remember it like it was yesterday. The hairs on the back of my neck stood up. It was, uh, so I, I can't even imagine Jim in the studio, uh, doing it and playing on it. And, uh, uh, but it's, it's, he tells that story so effectively, so effectively. We've got Ray Padgett, the author of a great new book called Pledging My Time. People who have played with Bob, hung out with Bob, worked with Bob uh, in, in technical aspects. We've got Ray on for the whole show tonight on the Wall of Power Radio Hour, so stick around.
Welcome back to the Wall of Power Radio Hour. This is your host, Paul Metza. On the show tonight, an interview that if you just tuned in, are really going to enjoy with author and writer Ray Paget, who just wrote a new book called Pledging My Time, uh, interviews with Bob Dylan and conversations with Bob's band members, people he's worked with, and and more. Was there, Ray, was there anybody you tried to get to that you couldn't? Oh, there were a ton. I mean, that's probably the reason no one's written this book before is that people around Bob Dylan, people who have worked with him are very private, very reticent to talk. At first, I assumed there were like legal things, you know, NDAs or something signed. It turned out that's not the case. It's just everyone knows Bob Dylan is private. No one wants to seem like he's anyone, you know, is is violating that privacy, is going to do something that's going to make a headline that's going to make Bob look bad or make them look bad. So, you know, a lot of the people I did get in the book have never spoken about their time with Dylan before. Um, but, yeah, there's plenty of people that I tried and haven't gotten to yes yet. And I emphasize yet because the nice thing is I still have this email newsletter. I'm still interviewing people. So, you know, anyone who said a no, I'm still trying to convince. There's, uh, I'm, I'm sure there's at least a volume two, if not a volume three in your future. And I think all of us out there that uh, adore Bob and love reading about him, uh, we don't have, I think I, I read somewhere where there's, in all the different languages uh, around the world, there's over 900, close to 1,000 books about Bob Dylan. Uh, as you know, I sent you a copy. I wrote one called Blood in the Tracks, the Minnesota Musicians Behind Dylan's Masterpiece. In fact, I have a feeling those musicians you'd love to talk to for your next, uh, for your next volume if you haven't reached out already. Speaking of uh, uh, all things Dylan, you recently did a, a book release at the Bob Dylan Center down in Tulsa. Tell us about that. Yeah, I had been to Tulsa a couple times since they opened the center uh, last, when was it, spring of 2022, I guess. They invited me for the just to come and check it out during the opening weekend, which was a blast, and then they had a sort of a Dylan nerd conference. Uh, in June, which was also a blast. But yeah, so I, you know, I've met the people involved there, but I was honored when they reached out and said, you know, we want you to do this book event, like the other people doing book events, or like Grail Marcus and people like that, you know, these very esteemed authors. And I'm just sort of new kid on the block, but it was, it was great. There were a bunch of Dylan fans asking smart questions. I talked to the director, Steve Jenkins, for a while. Um, and it was sort of a really nice, you know, capstone on all this work for the book. Well, and I, I uh, somewhere along the line, I read uh, Grail Marcus loves your book, Pledging My Time. That's that's right. He was kind enough to write something really glowing about it as a blurb. Um, and I, you know, I never even met the guy in person, but he he's someone who had subscribed to my news, my email newsletter for a couple years. Um, and so, you know, it was an honor. He's his books were among the first Dylan books I was reading in, you know, in high school when I first got into Dylan. I never thought I'd even talk with him, much I'm, less have him be praising my work like that. I'm looking forward to reading his uh, latest book, Folk Music, where I guess he takes seven songs, uh, folk songs, and ties them somehow into Dylan's uh, uh, mythology. Yeah, nobody, there's, you know, he's probably one of the uh, most astute uh, music critics in America. So that, that's high praise, Mr. Padgett. What, uh, Thanks. yeah, I was, uh, I was very honored. What, uh, what was it like being down there? Now you're part of the, 
the Dylan world. You've got your book, Pledging My Time. What was it like going through uh, the museum? What can you tell us that really struck you and really impressed you with the museum? It's got like over 100,000 artifacts, I believe, correct? Well, so there's two different components. There's the archive, which is sort of invite-only, private. That That's probably the 100,000. I don't know the number. And then there's the Dillon Center, where in a fairly small space, they cram, and I don't mean that as a negative thing, I mean as a positive, they cram as many as possible into this sort of public museum-like space. And it's just amazing. I mean, when you, I, I, I've been through there, I don't know, three, four, five times now. And every time you think, okay, I, it's only essentially two, I guess, three fairly large rooms. It's not enormous. You say, all right, I've seen it all. But then you'll find some tiny little thing on the wall that, you know, is a little bit of audio of an unreleased song or something that you missed the first four times through. So it's really an amazing, an amazing place down there in Tulsa. I was, uh, as part of, you know, just living in Minneapolis over the years, getting to know all the guys that played on Blood on the Tracks and, and having the honor to play with, with uh, the majority of them. Uh, I held that Martin D28 in my hands. I've got a great picture with Kevin Odegaard, who played that uh, guitar, I believe it was a 1970 or 1968, 1972 Martin D28 on Tangled Up in Blue. And uh, Kevin donated that to the uh, to the center. Did you able, were you able to lay your eyes on that piece of work? I'm trying to remember. It all blurs together. I think that's displayed. They have it sort of chronologically. Um, so I think that's displayed in, in that section, but I don't want to swear that and be wrong about it. There are a number of, a number of cool guitars. I know they've got like the Newport Electric is there. So there's a bunch wow. of cool guitars you can look at. And don't they have the, uh, that cool black leather jacket that, uh, that Dylan played at, at Newport in 65? They do. It's, yeah, it's been reunited with, uh, with the guitar, if I recall correctly. <laughs> that is so cool. What was, was there any surprises? Uh, that came up to you during your arduous research for pledging my time? Yeah, a million surprises. You know, as someone who's been a fan, you know, a deep fan, someone who's really been paying attention for years, you sort of think, you know, not everything, but, you know, as much as you're going to. Um, one thing that surprised me, given his reputation as standoffish, as aloof, as enigmatic, when I started my interviews, I sort of thought, probably these people basically never spoke to him except on stage, right? They probably right. had no personal relationships. He's Bob Dylan. He does his own thing, and, he, you know, that's it. So I was sort of amazed throughout his career how once you're in the inner circle, and Lord knows it's very hard to get in there for all these people, but once they're in, there's tons of stories of them hanging out and him being a nice guy and joking around and, you know, doing whatever, which is not really what I would have expected at all. It's not, certainly not what his reputation is to us on the outside. Well, and he's got uh, a re- really when when that side of him is revealed, he's got an incredible sense of humor. Yeah, he has a he has a penchant for for what we might call dad jokes. Uh, Ray Benson of Asleep at the Wheel told me one time he was they opened uh, Sleep at the Wheel opened the tour for Dylan and, and Ray said in a bunch, and he told me one time he's just sitting backstage, sort of cooling his heels. Out of nowhere, Bob Dylan walks up to him. He goes, "Hey, Ray, what is a train here with?" And Ray goes, uh, I don't know, Bob, what? And Bob Dylan goes, engineers, and walks away. <laughs> you know, it's funny. We can all do our Bob Dylan impersonation. In fact, Bob does the greatest uh, 
Bob Dylan impersonation uh, with his various voices over the years. There was a story that um, that that I'd like to share. Uh, Bucky Baxter, who uh, played with Bob from about 1991 until 99, uh, was in town with Bob. They were doing a five night stand at the Orpheum Theater in Minneapolis. And uh, Bob and his brother owned the Orpheum Theater at one time uh, f- for years. Uh, they had since been sold at Bounce Night Off. Bucky asked a cab driver, uh, where's, the, where's some really good music in town? And uh, God bless that cab driver. He brought him down to one of my gigs at a place called the Five Corner Saloon on the West Bank. Bucky heard a set and offered me a chance to go down and do a demo at his studio in Nashville that he owned with uh, Gary Talent, Springsteen's longtime bass player. So over two, uh, a couple of weeks of sessions down there, I went down and recorded four songs, went back and recorded another four. Then Bucky came up. We put out that record called Whistling Past the Graveyard, and Bucky came up and uh, played at the uh, that show with me at the Caboose Bar and then was able to get me backstage passes for several shows over the years. Told me a great story that you might enjoy, Ray Padgett. So Bucky was uh, playing with Steve Earl and Steve Earl opened a tour. Steve uh, Earl and the Dukes opened a tour for Bob Dylan. At the end of the tour, uh, Bob invited Bucky out to Beverly Hills to approach him about possibly playing in, in Bob's band. So, the way Bucky tells the story and may he rest in peace. It was a a phenomenal story to listen to. He was sitting in the Beverly Hills office of Dylan's manager. I believe it was Jeff Kramer with Bob and Jeff. And it was about 10 AM Beverly Hills. And so Bob offers Bucky the chance to play uh, a pedal steel in his band. He also played uh, uh, Dobro sang and mandolin over there. So recorded, uh, time out of mind and, and, and other things with Bob. So he offers him the gig and Bucky goes, well, how much does it pay? And, and Bob goes, $2,500 in per diem. And uh, Bucky goes, well, that's not a lot of money. I'm making that money with Steve Earl. And Bob goes, be a lot of money to somebody. <laughs> he Bucky took the gig and, uh, you know, that band – uh, through the 90s was you know, some of my favorite stuff. And Stan Lynch, for me, has always been the greatest uh, drummer in Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. But some of the, the funnest gigs I saw, when I, when I listened back, one of my favorite drummers, and Dylan's had nothing but great drummers, was Winston Watson. And you had yeah. some great stories with Winston. Tell us about Mr. Watson's story, stories to Ray Padgett, author of Pledging My Time. Sure. Yeah, I'm a big Winston Watson fan, too. So he was Dylan's drummer for much of the 90s. And he was a young guy. He sort of came from the grunge world. And his theory was that this was shortly he was hired shortly after Neil Young had started touring with Pearl Jam. You know, mm-hmm. so the theory was that maybe Bob wanted a little of that get a get a young kind of cool grunge guy, uh, you know, with the rest of us, the old timers. Um, and he, you know, so, so being young. He had a young kid. Uh, he had a daughter. I think she was five or six or something. And, you know, when they weren't in, when she wasn't in school, uh, his wife and daughter would come on the road. And he had this amazing story one time of, um, he talked, he talked to me about how much his daughter Marcella liked Bob Dylan. Um, she called him Uncle Bob. 
And they just got along. They just got along great. And I've heard just some other people that Dylan and kids tend to get along really well. And yeah. the theory, which makes sense to me, is that they're the only people who don't treat him like Bob Dylan. He's just you know some guy. If you're five years old, um, but anyway, the story is one time Winston is looking for his daughter before the show. Right? The wife says we can't find her anywhere. They're looking everywhere. The whole crew, the band, everyone is helping. No one can find her. Finally, Winston knocks on the. Bob Dylan's dressing room, you know, an assistant opens the door and there's Bob and Marcella deep in conversation. Marcella's finishing <laughs> up some story. Um, Winston says, come on, honey, we got to We got to go. It's time for the show. Anyway. So right before they go on stage, Bob Dylan stops Winston. He puts his arm on his shoulder and he says, Hey, Winston, we got to do something about that girl. Now, Winston thinks he means his daughter he, and he starts apologizing. I'm really sorry. I know she was bothering you and holding the show up. We're not going to, I'll keep her separate. You know, Bob says, no, 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 no. What it turns out had happened was that Mar- Marcella had had paint on her cowboy boots. Bob asks her, so why do you have paint on her cowboy boots? Marcella tells him this long story about essentially a bully in her school, a mean girl who was bullying her at school, threw paint on her nice cowboy boots. So Bob hears this story. He goes, finds her dad, and he says, we got to do something about that girl. <laughs> Neighborhood bully, right? Yeah, exactly. That now I want a, to interview. Now I want to interview the mean girl. See if Bob ever did something about it. <laughs> That's a phenomenal story, Ray Paget. Uh, and there's there's dozens of them in in Ray's book, pledging my time. We're going to listen to a little uh, Bob Dylan live with Winston Watson on drums, and then back for one more set with Ray Paget on the Wall of Power Radio Hour. Welcome back to the Wall of Power Radio Hour. This is your host, Paul Metzer, my guest for the whole show tonight. And I'm so enjoying our conversation is Ray Paget, writer and journalist. He's got a great book out called Pledging My Time, interviews with uh, 40 people that have either played or worked with Bob. Ray, talk a little bit about uh, some of the technicians, sound people, uh, and recording engineers that worked with Bob that really stuck out for you. I'm glad you brought those up because those are some of my favorite chapters. And these are the names, 
I mean, some of the musicians' names are fairly obscure, but these are the names that no one knows. And like, I literally say in my intro, like, I know you're not going to probably jump to these first, but you should read them because they're really good. Like, there's this one, for instance, there's this one sound guy called Keith Dirks. He did sound for Dylan in the late 80s and early 90s. So he is he was the guy, if you look at the stage, sort of off to the side, making sure Dylan and the band can hear themselves. But he had this funny story, for instance, of one time at rehearsals, I think very early on when he barely knew Dylan, where another sort of great Dylanism, where he's, he's you know, doing something with the soundboard. Bob Dylan sort of wanders over to him and says, apropos of absolutely nothing, you know, when it all comes down to it, there's only two things that matter in life, kids and food. And then Bob <laughs> Dylan takes a big bite of a jalapeno, turns around and walks away. So, uh, you know, the, the point is not just that's a great story, but like, I really try to find not just the obvious people, not just the people on stage, not just the people us Dylan nerds have heard of, but like, who else was there? Who was behind the scenes? Who was running the lights? Because sometimes those people have great stories, and they've almost never done any interviews before, so they've never been told. I've, I read that interview last night, and I believe he said after he got off the road, uh, you know, and he talks about touring. He goes, oh, you've toured the world. He goes, no, you get in the bus, off the bus, to the stage, back on the bus. And then he said when he finally got off the road for a while, he said Dylan was right. That's all that really matters is kids and food. <laughs> yeah, that, 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 that's right. I do love getting just not, I mean, most of the book is very Bob Dylan specific, but I do like also getting just little windows into the touring life, whether it's a musician or a sound guy or a tour manager or something else. You know, I was really, when I first got hip to your book, I, uh, I read a piece uh, uh, by Larry Campbell, that I, that was part of your interviews. And what surprised me back then, and it was a while back, was I just assumed Bob had non-disclosure agreements with all of his band members. Um, and, uh, when he passes, and let's hope that's, we got another 20 years out of the guy, and we might, uh, you know, the big book is going to be bass player Tony Garnier. Uh, did you, uh, did you ever even try to approach Tony to get any 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 insights, or was that uh, uh, no way you could get get behind that fence? Yeah, I, I think with anyone who's currently in the band, whether it's Tony who's been there for a million years or someone who joined earlier this year, you know, it's always going to be former band members. But but interestingly, I also assumed everyone had signed non disclosure agreements, and I literally asked the first couple interviews I did. And the answer was no. It's just people understand, like I say, Bob's privacy. But no, the current people, they never talk. And honestly, I, would, I wouldn't try to coerce them to because I wouldn't want to get anyone into trouble. Well, I, uh, I saw Dylan for the last time. The last time I saw him was 2019 at the Beacon Theater uh, with the great Charlie Sexton, the world's greatest electric guitar player. But... When you go back, and it's fun because now on the Internet you can see so many uh, uh, shows, live shows with video. And those, the time that Larry Campbell and Charlie Sexton spent with Bob, I think, are some of when Bob would let him loose, and he always didn't do that. Occasionally he has two of the greatest guitar players in the world on stage with him, and he decides to take the solo, which is part of that that. Dylan being Dylan, but talk a little bit about what Larry Campbell uh, told you in, in, in your great stories with Larry that uh, appear in your book, Pledging My Time. 
Oh, Larry was full of stories because, I mean, he was there for years. He was there for something like seven or eight years. Um, and, you know, one thing I like to do with someone like Larry is we talk about the experience generally for a while, but I also come armed with 10, 20, 30 specific notable shows or moments to ask about. For right. instance, there were a bunch of them with Larry, but one that jumps out where I got a, a really funny story was they performed for the Pope. It was some big Catholic event, and there are you know, hundreds of thousands of people watching, maybe millions. The Pope's up there, and like the highlight of the thing is a short Bob Dylan set. So I asked Larry, so this one time you played for the Pope, what was that? He told me some stories, but then the funniest one was there was this one moment where they're right in the middle of a song. I think it's knocking on heaven's door, and some Italian like TV guy comes running up to Larry, some Pope, the Pope's aide or something, and he starts yelling at him, and then Larry does it like, you've got to go meet the Pope. You've got to go meet the Pope. And Larry's like trying to play a guitar solo or something. This guy's like yelling at him. And Larry's trying to ignore him. And anyway, eventually the song ends, and Larry kind of wanders over to Bob Dylan and says, uh, Bob, this guy over here is telling me you got to go meet the Pope. <laughs> so Bob sort of shrugs, takes off his guitar, goes up, shakes the Pope's hand, comes back, puts the guitar on, and finishes the show. You know, I... Uh, uh... Bucky was on that show, Bucky Baxter, and there's a great picture of uh, Bob, Bucky's behind him, and then the Pope. And uh, I always said I was able to tell Bucky that before he passed away, way too young. I said, yeah, Bucky, Bucky Baxter, the only man standing between Bob Dylan and the Pope. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned people I have been able to interview. And Bucky's someone where, you know, I wish I'd I'm, I'm not old enough, but I wish I'd been doing this project 20 or 30 years ago because Bucky is someone who passed right as I was, you know, starting this work. And I love his playing. I would have loved to interview someone like him. But unfortunately, I wasn't doing I wasn't doing this in time. And obviously, there's a million people, you know, like that. Yeah, you can pick out any of those shows from the 90s that uh, Bucky was on. The one thing that uh, I've always loved about that and, and other uh uh, iterations of Bob's band is the harmony singing. And I loved when uh, Larry and Charlie and Bucky would harmonize with Bob because when those choruses came with two, three, four part harmony, man, it was majestic. But there's a great story with uh, Magine McCrary. Tell us that one about how she met Bob. I met uh, Regina in Nashville a couple of years ago at Phil Kaufman's 87th birthday. The guy that took uh, uh, Graham Parson out to the de desert and torched him. And she told me the story about the audition. Tell us that story, because it's just wonderful. In uh, my guest's book, Pledging My Time. Yeah, I mean, Regina was great. She was someone who, again, didn't have an enormous amount of knowledge of Bob Dylan beyond, um, you know, what everyone knows. But she gets this call to audition. What she doesn't know at the time, but learns soon after, is that Bob Dylan has gone Christian. All of the songs he wants to sing going forward are going to be Christian songs. She doesn't know this. She just goes for this audition, but she has this gospel background. She gets a phone call. She goes in, and she just he says, what do you want to sing? She sings a few um, spirituals. Precious Lord, Take My Hand is one. Amazing Grace is another. And with each one, he sort of gets more enthusiastic. She sings one, and he just is sort of sitting there. She starts getting nervous. She sings the second. She sings the second, and he's now he's kind of looking up. And then the third, he jumps up and he says, "That's what I want." And so that's kind of how she got the gig. And then uh, Bob says, "But you got to do something with your hair." And she goes, 
who's going to pay for it? That's right. Yeah, he wanted her to get her hair braided for whatever reason. Which I don't know. What, I don't know what happened to that. You look at the photos, and, and most of them, at least, she does not have her hair braided. So I guess. But yeah, she said, "You you going to pay for it?" Um, and he laughed because I think you know one thing that comes across in a lot of these is that if people are sort of super nervous or reverent, treat him like some sort of a god. You know, he doesn't like that. People who are going to kind of you know joke around with him, give him a little grief here and there. He seems to respond well to that. We've only got about a minute left with Ray Padgett. Ray, what did you, what's your uh, overview now of Bob Dylan the Man after hearing these 40 interviewees tell their story? Just, I mean, the, the word that comes across, I think, throughout these is the word change. Anytime anyone, you know, Bob Dylan, anyone expects Bob Dylan to do the same thing he's done before, he does something different. And that comes through in so many of these interviews. One guy told me an amazing story that I thought was so revealing where he said, one night I didn't play drums on knocking on heaven's door, but one night I thought it needed a fill. I went out in the middle of the song, kind of snuck out, did this big drum fill. Bob Dylan turns around, looks at him and smiles. So I asked, Oh, so that was part of the arrangement now, right? You did that big drum fill during knocking on heaven's door every night. And the guy says, no, I never did it again. Cause I knew he loved it in that moment because it was in the moment. But if that became part of the routine, he doesn't like routine. And I just thought that said so much about how Bob Dylan works. It has to be in the moment. It has to be always changing. That is a beautiful way to end this uh, interview on the Wall of Power Radio Hour. Ray Padgett, it's been so enjoyable speaking with you. I, I uh, would suggest anybody with a Dylan fan to pick up Ray's book, Pledging My Time, for a Christmas present. And tell us, uh, how can people subscribe to your Substack? Flagging down the double E. You can just go to flaggingdown.com. I'm constantly doing posts, sharing tapes, doing interviews about um, Bob Dylan in concert from yesterday to uh, more recently. I just got mine in my inbox today. Ray Padgett, thank you so much. Uh, I'm looking forward to speaking with you again, talking about your upcoming projects, but this has been most delightful. Have a great holiday season, and congratulations on your phenomenal book, Pledging My Time. Thanks so much, Paul. Appreciate you having me. Thanks for listening to the Wall of Power Radio Hour. The show is produced by Paul Metza, engineered by Patrick Lillia. We'd like to thank our guest, Ray Padgett, author of Pledging My Time. My book, Blood in the Tracks, the Minnesota Musicians Behind Dylan's Masterpiece, I co-wrote with Rick Shevchik at finer bookstores everywhere, also on Amazon. And I've got a big show coming up, my 25th anniversary, Paul Metza and Sonny Earl at the Dakota Jazz Club on Wednesday, December 20th in downtown Minneapolis. Call the Dakota or show up at the door and get some ticks. And like my dad used to tell me, remember to be kind and make someone happy.